0: If you could, would you take your Bibles this morning and let's turn them to the text for this morning's message and stand with me as we honor God's Word. Romans chapter 12 is where we'll be, so if you could take your Bibles, let's turn there. Romans chapter 12, we're going to begin looking at a very relevant subject, a very Important subject, not that any subject of the Bible is more important than one, but this seems to be something we're facing right now and something we need to get a hold of in our minds. So pray the Lord would lead in this. Romans chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. We're actually going to read down through the rest of the chapter. Romans 12 and verse 14. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome. He says this, verse 14: Bless them which persecute you. Bless And curse not. Let me just back up, read that again in case you missed it. Because we do. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place in the wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, and if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's bow our heads. Father, I ask Your blessing now in this time. We are grateful to be here. I ask, Lord, that Your Word would ring true and clear. You would hide me behind it. and That You would give us open hearts and open ears to Your Word this morning. Let all that is said and all that is done be according to Your will and for Your glory. And do the work in us now that only You can do. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a song from the 60s that keeps coming to mind ever so often. Or at least a line from a song, The Times They Are A-Changin'. And they are, aren't they? As the time changes and the dynamic of the world steadily grows darker, we have to face it. Not that it hasn't been dark before. It just seems in our lifetime it's growing darker than it was. And we find ourselves having to navigate through it. With a Christian biblical worldview, how do we handle what's going on? And there's new aspects, at least new to us, new aspects of Christianity perhaps we haven't much thought about before. Not that they're new to any of our forefathers, but they're new to us. In passages of Scripture, we never really had to deal with immediately. Now we have to. Like passages on persecution or trials or temptations, right? Now they're right before our eyes. This passage is one of those. Bless those which persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Now, let's let's just be honest. None of us have ever really had to face persecution before. I'm convinced that for most modern Christians... The extent of this verse and our experience with this verse probably runs along these lines. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you say, instead of cursing, oh, bless their heart, and you show amazingly godly restraint by not honking your horn. That's like the extent of persecution that you face. Somebody cut me off. Or maybe someone was mean and they said something you didn't like that's the extent of the persecution that we face honestly right that's not persecution that is normal humanity that's normal humanity and a normal sin nature we got to deal with other parts of the world deal with very real persecution and reviling and things that the Scripture speaks about. For them, it's the norm. Here, we have largely enjoyed acceptance and approval. It's been okay to be a Christian. It's almost been expected to be some sort of Bible believer in the fabric of America, right? We have some measure of support. That is no longer the case. We've seen that begin to slip. And we are facing now pushback, certainly from the governmental realm. And that's to be expected. But you know what kind of throws me off guard and takes me aback from those? We are, we are, I am seeing pushback and persecution or reviling, if you will, from those who profess to be believers. <laughs> I remember at the start of the whole COVID thing um, when everything was shut down, right? Right? There was opinions and accusations bouncing all around social media on either the absurdity of churches remaining open or the wisdom of it. Churches, should they be open or should they be closed? And there was some just mean, devastating comments from pastors saying, Any pastor who keeps, I remember this, any pastor who keeps his church open has the blood of the congregation on their hands. It is unfaithful to call people to assemble together in an assembly of death. (laughs) I don't mean to make light of anything, but man, somebody's ticked off. (laughs) Things like that. Even... There's still some who go on and say those who choose not to get the vaccine and pastors who don't push their churches to get the vaccines are not following Romans chapter 13 and obedience to government. This is beginnings of things that will grow much worse from people who call themselves believers. All that to say... We're seeing a rise in all of this where it wasn't there before, at least not in our lifetimes. And I don't believe, beloved, that it's going to lessen or disappear. In many ways, I feel that it's just beginning. Again, not that it's new. It's just new to us. And the command of Scripture here is very clear. Bless them, verse 14, which persecute you. Bless them and curse not. That's simple enough for us to understand. Right? All of us know what that's talking about. We've probably heard it before along along with other things that Jesus Himself says and we know what God expects. We know, but do we practice it? This is a command, listen now, this is a command that is humanly impossible. Think about it. It is a command that is humanly impossible. Like seriously, in the moment when it's happening, do you bless when you are reviled? When someone's yelling in your face or someone's putting you down or someone's criticizing you for believing in the Bible or for going to church, in that moment, do we bless or is there a a tendency in our heart to curse back or to to snap back? Because humanly, that's not going to be your first reaction. Blessing is not going to be your first reaction. Well, the Bible tells us that needs to change. And there is some serious work that has to go on behind the scenes in our heart to make that the reaction, isn't there? And it, there's, there's just... I, there's one thing I want to handle this morning or address this morning. The question that might be in our heads, because this might be a first question that pops up, is Why? Why should I bless somebody who's tearing me down? Why should I be a blessing and and not snap back to somebody who's who's ridiculing me or reviling me or saying all these hurtful things about me because I believe the truth? Why should I treat them well? Why should I return blessing? You see, this world has had some deal of influence on us because our first reaction uh, or what we're taught to think more along the lines of is something like this. Don't you know who I am? You're going to say that to me? Hold on, buddy. Don't you know who you're talking to? Cross me and it's on. You want to say that about me, you better watch out. I don't deserve to be treated like this. You're not worth that. On and on, right? If we're honest, that's kind of the first reaction that we have in our hearts and in our minds. And We've all felt that to some extent. Why on earth should I bless someone who persecutes me? And again, the, the answer to that is it has a lot of area. There's a lot of work that goes on in our hearts and our minds. And it, this scripture contains and it comes with some very solid and beautiful instructions and some other places that we'll look at Uh, Next message that Jesus says, but we're not going to go that length today. Actually, we're going to do something I really don't like to do. We're not going to spend any time at all with the text this morning. (laughs) That's like the worst thing for somebody who who does what I do and walks through Scripture one verse at a time. That's the worst thing. You're never supposed to do that. But I just want to simply set verse 14 out as the command and then maybe go about to answer the question, why should we follow that command? Bless and curse not. Why should we do that? Well, I heard something recently that has really stuck with me. It's kind of resonated in my own heart over this past couple weeks, and I pray that it will with yours. So I don't really have an outline today. I just want to walk you through a Bible story, a Bible story that answers that question. And one Bible story we ought to know every word to, and that's the story of Jesus. Hebrews 12 says this. We read it this morning. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him, consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your own minds. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Can we do that today for just a Short time. We know that Jesus was God in the flesh. Much more than some man or some godly teacher, he was Emmanuel, God with us. The Word become flesh, come to redeem us. So every word and every action has utmost importance. Every record we have in those four Gospels of what he did and who he spoke to and how he spoke to them becomes of paramount importance, doesn't it? We ought to know the gospel story. We ought to know the words and the actions of Jesus. I want to see what he did when it came to persecution. I want you to see what he did when it came to those who reviled him. How did Jesus handle it? Because in the end, all we do is all about and all for him, right? We're not here for ourselves. We're here because of Jesus. And are we not Christians? Do we not call ourselves that, which means to be Christ-like? So let's take a look. The Garden of Gethsemane is probably what we could call the weakest moment of Jesus. We see there as the Scriptures record that He is praying there in great heaviness. Mark chapter 14, and verse 34 says... He tells the disciples, he's sorrowful even unto death. This weight that he is bearing, he says, it's going to kill me. So much so that his body is sweating blood. And we know that this is much more than some trivial trial. I believe that there in the garden, he is beginning to take upon himself the sins of the world. He's beginning to feel the weight of man's separation from God and he is preparing to take those sins upon his own body to the cross. The perfect Lamb of God will give his life for my sin and for yours. And he prays that the cup would pass. And that cup that he speaks, I believe, is the wrath of God that he will drink for all men. So we see him there in the garden bearing this immensely heavy load that we can't even understand, the sins of the world beginning to be placed on Him as the sacrificial Lamb of God. That's where I want to pick up because guess what happens in the garden? Guess who shows up? Judas. Judas. Jesus knows it was Him who would betray Him. In fact, at the Lord's Supper, after it's finished, He tells Judas, go. Do what you're going to do, and do it quickly. Judas shows up. Scripture tells us that he comes to the garden with a great multitude, multitudes of soldiers who are armed to the teeth. And he's there for a purpose, to betray Jesus, to sell Him out for 30 pieces of silver. And the Scripture tells us and. You can write these down. I'm going to quote quite a few scriptures. You can write these down. You're not going to be able to turn quickly with me, but I would simply ask you just to listen. Mark 14, 45 says this, As soon as Judas was come, he goeth straightway to Jesus and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. The sign of deep friendship. The sign of deep love. He shows up. With a band of soldiers, says, Master, teacher, and kisses Jesus. Now I don't know what you would have done. I'm sure I would not have done what Jesus did. I would have slapped him right across the face, maybe given him a bloody nose, or maybe made his lips fall off. Just poof, (laughs) that's what you get. Or just simply poof, be gone. Cease to be. Can you how could you think of doing this to Jesus? Something in our human mind would have done that, right? Like, Who do you think you are calling me teacher and showing me signs of love? But that's not what Jesus did. No, the response of Jesus to that is stunning. Matthew 26, 50. And Jesus said unto him, friend, wherefore art thou come? Friend, what are you doing here? Friend. Judas was not Jesus' friend in that moment. He was doing the unthinkable. Yet Jesus extends love. You know that was the last shot for Judas to stop? Hey friend, what are you doing? Friend. Jesus then turns to the, to the multitude of the soldiers. He says, who are you looking for? And John records this, and I love this little passage of Scripture. He said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. Scripture says, I am he, but that he is added. I am. and what, <laughs> Immediately says, they all fall down because God just spoke his name is what happened. I am. Boom. They all fall to the ground. Should have been a warning. Uh, be careful who you're messing with. This isn't some normal man. He speaks, you fall down. He could speak, everything ceases to exist. But they get back up and they ask Him again. He says, yes, I am Him. And so you know what they do? They take His hands and they bind Him. He whose hands made everything. They bind Him. The One who has existed for all of eternity. The One who holds their very atoms together. They take him and they tie his hands together and they lead him away. And so it begins. They begin to take him on a, the journey towards the cross. They take him to a man named Annas. John records this in his gospel and Annas is named as the, as the high priest. Yet so is Caiaphas in the Bible. Well, you can't have two high priests. Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. This speaks to the corruption of of what was supposed to be one of the fairest judicial bodies on the face of the planet, the Sanhedrin. A council set in place from the Old Testament that was supposed to judge the nation of Israel fairly. One high priest, 70 elders. But yet with the time of Jesus, everything's messed up and they actually have two high priests. And Annas Annas is like the mob boss behind the scenes pulling the strings. Caiaphas sits in the position, Annas Gives the word. What he says goes. And so they take him first in the night to Annas. He's brought to Annas and he's questioned. And Annas, no doubt, has been waiting for this for some time. In fact, this is like his dream come true. You see, around the temple of that time, there was an area called the court of Annas. You know what they did in the court of Annas? They sold things like doves and sheep for the sacrifice for those coming up that didn't have it. They had their tables set up and they would sell the animals for a way higher price. And in fact, to buy those animals, you had to change the regular money into temple money. So they had tables of money changers. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Yeah, all these places were in a thing called the court of Annas. He set it up. He ran it. He got the proceeds. And you know what Jesus did to that, right? John chapter 2, when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. (laughs) That's one of those moments I'm saying, Go get them, Jesus. Throwing tables, whipping animals, maybe men. Just getting them out. Get out of here. What are you doing? And he didn't do that once. He did it twice. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end, both right in the face of this guy that he stands before. Oh yeah, Annas has been waiting. So he begins to answer him some questions. And John chapter 18 records this. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Who are you? What are you teaching? What's this all about? Jesus answered him. I spake openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort and in secret, I have said nothing. That's a rebuke, actually. You see, this is this, this little trial that's happening is done without public notice, is done under the cover of night in secrecy. It's illegal. All the trials of Jesus are illegal according to Scripture. And Annas doesn't miss that. Jesus says, everything I've done, I've done out in the open, not like what you're doing right now. I've done nothing in secret, just like you're doing. Jesus calls him out. And then listen to what happens. John 18, verse 22. When he had thus spoken, one of the officers stood by, One of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest this way? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? The soldier says, How dare you speak to the high priest this way? How dare you speak to him like that? He says this to God. And he slaps the face of God. <laughs> Which, by the way, is exactly what, is, what humanity is doing. How dare you say I'm wrong? How dare you say I can't do what I want to do? How dare you tell me what to do? How dare you tell these people who are so loving and so nice that they, they can't do what they want to do? How dare you? Exactly what this soldier did. And he turns and slaps the face of the Son of God for calling out the high, the corrupt high priest with truth. No, sir, how dare you? How dare you speak to Jesus this way? Well, that happens. That is finished at... He's led now to Caiaphas, and there's another mock trial given. Matthew 26, Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false witness against Jesus to put Him to death. So they bring Him to the sitting high priest. And now they begin looking for witnesses to condemn Him. There's no witnesses in place before they start the trial. There's no reason to start the trial other than they hate Him. And now they begin to try to find false witnesses. They sought false witnesses against Jesus to put Him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. They're not going to find any. (laughs) Jesus didn't do anything wrong. But they're searching the city under the cover of night. Hey, bring something that's going to stick against this guy so we can kill him. (laughs) He could have walked. You know that. Jesus could have said, this is a bunch of baloney. You guys don't know what you're doing. In fact, here's why from from uh, uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Look, you guys are breaking your own law. I'm out. And he would have been legally justified to do that, but he didn't, did he? He held his peace. They can't find any any witnesses against him, so Caiaphas comes right out and gets to the point and he asks the question in Matthew 26... The high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Son of God? Are you the promised one? Tell us now. And the answer that Jesus gives will seal his death. Mark, 15, Mark 14, 62. Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. <laughs> You know, there's some bozos that say Jesus never claimed to be God. Clearly they haven't read the Bible, like right there. Are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ of Scripture? I am, he says. Pair that with John chapter 8, you have your proof. Well, you know what this does to Caiaphas, the self-righteous guy? Oh man, he just loses it. He begins to rent his clothes and say, Oh, see, such blasphemy. This deserves death. We need to kill him for blaspheming against... He's saying he is God. And then Matthew 26 and 67 says this, Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him, which means to hit him with closed fists, and smote him with the palms of their hands to slap him, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who hit you? May I remind you again who this is? God in the flesh. They spit on Him. They hit Him. They mock Him. He's then sent to Pilate. They bring him to the Roman authority, so they have their mock trials. They find him guilty, and now they bring him to the Roman authority to execute judgment. But well, when, they, when they bring him, they've got to be careful, because they come right up to the threshold of, the, of Pilate's Hall, and they say, well, we can't enter in. We don't want to defile ourselves, because we've got to eat the Passover tomorrow. And that would just be wrong. Do you see how damning outward religion can be? Thinking you're doing the right thing outwardly when inward you're rotten? That's what these guys are doing. They are slapping and spitting on and condemning falsely God Himself. But yet they're so holy they don't want to step across a threshold that would defile them. Amazing. What a joke. Pilate asked him a few questions. And he says, for the first of many times, I find no fault in him. He sends him to Herod. Herod is a bad name in Scripture. Anytime you see that, it's bad. The guy, this Herod who is sitting on the throne is the son of the baby killer who tried to kill Jesus when he was just a young boy with the wise men and all that. This is his son. And boy, Herod is glad to see him because Luke 23, 8 says this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad for he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him. Man, I wanted to see this guy so long. I've heard so much about you. Why? He hoped to see some miracle done by him. doesn't want to see him to hear what he has to say. He wants to see him do a trick. The king of eternity, the creator of all, the one who angels worship endlessly, is now reduced to a sideshow attraction. And Herod basically says, Hey, you do a trick now. Okay, now. He could have. He could have struck Herod with leprosy. Want to see a trick? <laughs> How's that? But he did not In fact, it says he answers nothing. And they mock him and put a robe on him, yet he remains silent. When he could have said so much, he remains silent. So Herod sends him back to Pilate. And by the way, Luke 23 says this, that same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together before they had been enemies. Isn't it sickening how the world will form alliances against God and the truth? These two bond because of their hatred for Jesus. Don't we see that happening now? All around. So now he's in front of Pilate and we're familiar with this. You know this story. Pilate questions him. They have conversations. He, he asks him, are you a king or not? He asks him that. Are you the king of the Jews? <laughs> Jesus I love the way he puts some things sometimes. He says, did somebody tell you this or are (laughs) are you really asking? Somebody tell you to ask this? John 18 records this. Pilate answered, am I a Jew, your own nation, and the chief priests have delivered you to me? What have you done? What did you do to make these people so mad? Are you a king or are you not? Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Amen to that. My kingdom is not of this world, Pilate. I am king, but my kingdom is greater than this, is what he's saying. Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. Yes, is what the response is. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. This is like the second or third time he's told them, I I find nothing wrong. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with the bargaining. He says, hey, listen, I, I give you guys one prisoner. Why don't you let that be Jesus? I'll just give you Jesus of Nazareth, and I'll put this guy Barabbas to death, who's a murderer, and he's convicted. And the, How about I just release Jesus, and they ask for the murderer Barabbas instead. No, give us Barabbas, crying out of Jesus over and over, crucify him, crucify him. We see His evasion of guilt. He tries to take water and say, I wash my hands of all this because I find no fault in Him. We see His attempt to satisfy the bloodlust of the accusers. John chapter 19. Listen to what the Scriptures say. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him. Two words we don't understand the depth of, but you've heard the explanation before. Scourging means to whip them with what would probably be a cat of nine tails or something similar, long strands of leather with bone or glass tied at the end so that when it would hit the back of someone, it would take hold of flesh and tear it open. And It would not just be the back. The cords would be different lengths. They would wrap around most likely to the front and tear from the front to the back over every square inch of someone's body. That's why Paul says I received thirty-nine lashes. I think he says that. Save one. I don't need, forgive me. I'm a pastor, I should know these things. But it's either either forty lashes or thirty-nine lashes was thought to be death because you would lose so much blood, so you went just one below. They did that to Jesus. After he'd already been spit in the face, after he'd already been uh, beaten up, mocked. Pilate ties him up, and he has the soldiers whip him. If you've ever seen the movie Passion of the Christ, and that scene is probably a good pretty good depiction of it. Pilate took him and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, jamming these two or three inch long thorns on this bush down into his head. And they put on a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew's account says they bow the knee in mockery. And they smote him with their hands. Matthew tells us they beat him with the reed, they spit in his face, God's face. Pilate does this, takes him again and saith unto him, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Look what I've done to him. I've punished him the best way I can, short of death. Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto him, Look at him. Let him go. It's basically what he's saying. There's nothing wrong with him. Behold the man. And when the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! It's not enough. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he was the more afraid, he went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Where are you from? Whence art thou? Who are you and where are you from? Why do they hate you so much? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? I love this. Jesus answered, Thou could have no power at all against me except it were given me from above. You've got no power against me. I'm letting this happen. You're not taking my life. I'm letting it happen. From that From thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And so Pilate gives in to the mob. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, He brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. It was preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. Don't miss that. That's a whole sermon in itself. You see, the Lamb has been examined and prepared, if you know Old Testament. The Lamb of God is ready. He saith unto the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. You know the story. All this done to the perfect one, God in the flesh. At any time, he could have called legions of angels to be there in the blink of an eye. He told Peter as much. When Peter tried to cut off the the guy's ear when they were coming to take uh, Jesus in the garden, he says, well, hold on. Picks up the ear, puts it back on. He says, man, I don't need no swords. I just speak. Angels are here. There's a greater purpose, Peter. He could have spoken everything out of existence the same way He spoke it into existence. He could have left that crown and robe and a pile to go right up to heaven and come right back on that white horse ready to take His vengeance. You're going to do this to me? Hold on two seconds. Poof! And here He comes. He could have done that and He would have been justified, right? But He didn't. In fact... We read these horrible, yet beautiful words of John chapter 19, verse 16. Then Pilate, then Pilate delivered him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. He's led to the cross, to his death, so weakened he cannot carry the crossbeam. So he makes his way, step by step, surrounded by jeers. Sneers of onlookers. If you're the Christ, save yourself. I thought you were the Son of God. Shouts of the accusers. He goes to the cross. Verse uh, Luke twenty-three thirty-three. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Listen now. They would take the top beam of the cross and throw it on the ground and throw Him on top of it they would stretch his arms out as far as they would go to the side and drive spikes through the middle of his wrists. Every other person, I believe, who was ever crucified, they would have had to pin their arms down to do so, but not this one. Not this one. I believe he stretched out his arms for them. Because through all of this, he was giving his life willingly. He let it happen because it was the perfect will and perfect plan of God. And so He let them crucify Him. But it's the next verse in Luke that strikes me. Notice the placement. Luke 23, 33. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Luke 23, 34. Next verse, and let me tell you what the Greek says. Jesus kept saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It wasn't said one time. Jesus kept saying that. Was that with every pound of the nail? Was that with every move that the executioners made as they would hang Him from the cross? Do you see that? Do you hear that, beloved? Does that ring in your hearts? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the one who has been worshipped for eternity, the one who spoke all things into existence and holds all things together, He who deserves nothing but adoration and praise and worship, do you see He blesses them as they kill Him? Father, forgive them. He prays for them. They don't know what they're doing. At any point, any point, he could have said, don't you know who I am? How dare you speak to me that way? And by the way, he would have been the only one in history justified saying that. You can't talk to me like that. Don't you know who I am? Instead, He says, forgive them, Father. At any point, He could have stepped back and looked up and down history at every human heart ever. All in the past, all the future, every human that will ever exist. He, he could have known as He does our hearts to the fullest extent and He could have said, there's none, there's no one righteous. Righteous. Not even one. No one seeks after me. No one is worth this. And he could have left in the blink of an eye. He could have said, I'm out. I'm going back to glory. And the eternal worship he is due. And he would have been eternally justified in doing that. But he didn't. Praise Him. He did not do that. Instead, He died for us as our Savior. Counting the shame as nothing because there's the greater good of the cross. Knowing what lies, enduring the cross, knowing what lies on the other side is the redemption of sinners and a reconciliation back to a relationship with God. That is the why. That's the why. Why do we bless people who persecute us? Why should we bless and not curse? Because we're looking to Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, consider Him and how He acted. Consider Him when these things come about. Consider Jesus who showed us what to do. Listen, the term Christian is much more than some hashtag that makes up a little portion of our life like some magic word that gets us more blessings or more money or eternally good health. Which sadly is what most professing Christians today view it as. No! Being Christian is a life, not a part of a life. It is the whole of our life. It is a calling from God to be more like Him. If that doesn't sound good to you, check your heart. If you don't want to be more like Jesus, and you want to be like, more like so-and-so who has this and this and this, and has these goals and that goals, I don't give a rip about your goals. If you don't care about being like Jesus, you need to check your heart. Because that's who you are as a Christian. Or else stop calling yourself one. Oh, we're called to be like Him. To partake of His nature. To be changed from one level of glory into a next to we're becoming more and more like Him. And people are seeing more and more of Him in us. To live with His very presence. To live with the promise of what is to come. We are called to be like Him. Not just when things are good and easy, but in the face of persecution. Why do we bless those who persecute us and revile us and say evil against us? Because Jesus did. Plain and simple. That's what I want to set in your hearts as a foundation before we begin to talk about anything else. Why do we look to Jesus? Look to the example He left us. We'll look next time on what exactly persecution is because there is a time to stand up for truth. Jesus Himself did that. How, do, how should we do that? What is the time we stand or we don't? We'll look at that next time. But for now, I know it's helpful for me and perhaps it's going to be helpful for, helpful for you to let go of some of the arrogance in our own hearts. Take our focus on, off of, of ourselves and maybe begin to prepare our hearts now for some things that may be coming in society. Looking to Jesus when this comes. Considering Him who instead of cursing us, blessed us, didn't He? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy. Thank You for the love that You've shown us in Your Son. Thank you for the example you've given us, Lord. And So many times when we were at enmity against you, you loved us. You extended your grace to us, Lord. I am so thankful for that in my own life. I ask, Lord, that you would please help us in our own hearts as we see persecution in the world mounting, as we see things Going that way, Lord, that you would help us now to not get distracted by self, not get distracted by sin or other things that get in the way, but instead, Lord, that we would keep our eyes on you so that people may see you in us. I thank you again for all that you've done. I ask this in the wonderful, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.